expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Well, welcome to episode 105 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, where, of course, Jesus was resurrected, because it's comics, man. Well, I mean, you know, you see all these movies that are coming out now, like Passion and all this other stuff, and, and shows. I mean, he just, he is, I think, one of the most resurrected characters in all of entertainment right now. Absolutely. And, of course, Happy Easter from Nick and I here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hopefully, yes. you're going to have a good one, or if you're listening to this after Easter, Hopefully you found all your eggs and stuff and you're good to go. And hopefully you've woken up from that diabetic coma you've put yourself into. No, you know what's going to happen is that somebody's going to go out on Monday and just destroy the discounted Easter candy. Dude, my friends and I, we were in high school. We had a Gertrude Hawk store in the mall in Syracuse. So literally the day after Easter... We'd, after school, get my friend's car, go to Gertrude Hawk, and buy, like, all the candy that was, like, 70% off. Okay, quick story before we get get to what happened last week on the show. I was out at the mall the other day, and I went to a particular department store. I won't say which one. It's actually more about clothing or something like that. So I'm weaving through trying to find some Batman versus Superman socks, you know, to wear to the premiere and all that stuff. And I'm like, okay. So I take a look to the left. And I see, you know, the discount clearance section. I'm like, all right, cool, fine. No problem. It was Christmas stuff. No. Not even going to lie. I mean, I mean, like, you know those little, I don't know what to buy dad gifts. It was those. It was the the, the sleeper sets from, like, a Christmas story. Well, well, Bruce Wayne's case, he never knows what to buy his father. Well, that's true. Oh, it's flowers. <laughs> yeah, flowers. Here is the same fucking gift. <laughs> Thanks, son. Oh, wow. But, I mean, that was really crazy. But I mean, it was so cool. Speaking of DC, talking to uh, Shea Fontana last week yep. about Superhero Girls. And Superhero High went really well this Saturday. The, the the special was really great. It was a really great special. Really, really fun. Great hour spent watching it on Boomerang. And, yeah, man. I mean, again, we talked about the whole initiative and what DC is doing. And it's, it's really, really fun. It's really, really important to what they're doing. Because, like I said, I don't have kids and you don't have a daughter. But, hey... When we, if when and if we do have a kid, have daughters, you know, we now have an easier way. Instead of handing them a Polly Pocket or a Barbie, we can say, hey, here's Harley Quinn. Here's Supergirl. Here's right. Batgirl. You know, here's Wonder Woman. You know, it's a great time that we're living in now, especially for, for kids, especially for, you know, young girls. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think that the way that they bring not only the humor into it, but the, hey, everybody's special and everybody has a thing that they're really good at aspect I think it's really cool too. And I, and the way that they just bring these characters out and Shay told us that, you know, we're starting with a core group of characters, but as it grows, we're going to see more characters right. from, from Canon introduced. So I can't wait for it to get to that point. And man, I'm telling you, I, I go to, I go to the store and I look for the superhero girls toys. They're gone, dude. Yeah. They're just not there. So for Easter is did the wife get you a, uh, or is going to get you a, uh, a chocolate Harley Quinn. All I know is I'm going to see Batman versus Superman on my birthday, and that's all that matters to me. That's that's all that's, that matters. That's all I care about right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and normally, I, you know me, I'm not gonna go the day of the the release, right? But this is different, man. It's my birthday. I want to go see Batman versus Superman. Then, I've been waiting years for this to happen. And then when you get home, it's James versus his wife, but in a loving way. <laughs> well. <laughs> 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 uh, 
But that, well, that's going to do it. Come up next. Your wife's going to fucking kill me when she hears this. <laughs> you thought you thought Doomsday was a formidable foe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watch out for that. <laughs> but that's going to do it. Come up next. We got two new comics this week. It's what we're reading on Down Nerdy. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girls, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, there's that time we got our long boxes. We have two new comics to discuss this week. Of course, it's what we're reading. And it's always brought to us by the fine folks at Fancy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragon Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the great things he has for yourself and the Cobra Commanders that you love. So, James, I'm going to go first this week. I bring up Cobra Commander because my comic this week. Remember how last week you did Transformers Deviations from yeah. IDW? Well, mm-hmm. I did G.I. Joe Deviations from IDW. And, oh, okay. And here's the thing. When I look at this comic, I'm like, okay, G.I. Joe is going to be very action-packed. It's going to be, you know, kind of like that. And, you know, years dealt with, what if Optimus Prime didn't die? Well, this is, what if Cobra took over the world? Okay. Now, it's written by Paul Adler, and art is done by Corey Lewis. However, I'm sorry, this book is complete and other garbage. You know, it's funny, before you even get into it, notice who wrote it. It wasn't Larry Hama who usually writes... G.I. Joe. So already, you're kind of going, okay, how's this going to go? And so I bring up the fact that, like, okay, well, Cobra has the edge. Now, Cobra Commander and the whole Cobra thing is taking over the world. But it's not, hey, people are enslaved and destruction. It's, hey, it's, hey, we run the world. Let's make it a better place. Let's make it like what? Happy Gilmore's happy place where birds are chirping and people are getting together and there's no war and it's all peaceful. That's the... I was like, I read that, I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, this is nothing like Cobra Commander. Yeah. And, and Cobra, Alar's writing makes him a caricature where he's like, I got an idea. Let's, you know, how's my oh, plan no. to disable all the cell phones and tablets and create all this mass hysteria and destruction going? And you're like, um, we don't do that. Why? Because we don't want to, you know, have all this hysteria and problems in the world. And I'm like, <laughs> no, oh, Cobra God. Commander, that's not something that we do. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's like, come on, man. And the art is like, you know, we had Annie Wu on, you know, a while back talking about Black Canary. Picture Black Canary's art. Worsen it and make it more Teen Titans Go-ish. Wow, that's that's quite a mishmash she kind of created there. Well, because like the color-wise, it's like they looked at Black Canary and they're like, let's do her this. Well, like, water is pink for some reason and everything else. And I'm like, and Cobra Commander in the first few pages, actually a lot of pages, his suit is purple. Nope, and, nope, yep. nope. No, 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 can't do that. No, no. And I mean, this whole thing, and now of course, and then there's somebody from Cobra who was like, you know what, I don't like the way we're going with this whole peaceful thing. It's not Cobra Commander, it's somebody else. And so, of course, they go to the Joes and say, hey, I want to cause havoc. I want you guys, you know, to come in and infiltrate this base and whatever. So it's like opposites pretty much attract in a sense. And it's the whole world flipped upside down, but not in a good way. And I tell you what, this this comic was about 28 pages. I've never wanted to fly through 28 pages faster in my life. Wow, that's that's not a good sign. Well, because like everybody's a caricature. Like this is written, and is it, when I'm reading this, I'm like GI Joe. I expect action. I expect seriousness. What did I get? I got the space balls of GI Joe. 
Yeah, that's not good. And and not in a good way because we not love Spaceballs, but... Yeah, it's, Spaceballs is great because you expect it. You know it's satire because it's Mel Brooks. This, you're like, oh, it's G.I. Joe, but it's satire. Like, like you know, Des- like there's a, there's a panel where I literally shook my head where uh, Cobra Commander is sitting in uh, Baroness's and Destro's apartment, it looks like, mm-hmm. and... Destro, I shit you not, is standing at a stove, pretty much with an apron on, saying, Destro's, Daddy Destro's homemade meatloaf. I'm like, oh, no. Not Destro. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's not good. I mean, it's a one-shot. It's not good at all. And the thing is, this is a one-shot. It's $5. And you can't really drop this because it's a one-shot. It's a skip for me, man. Like, it's... It's not. It's everything I didn't expect it to be. Like the thing is that the covers lie on this too. Like the covers make it look like okay, we're gonna get some serious action in here, or like oh my god, Cobra's taking over, everything's hell. But it's like nope, everything's a lot better now. It's just kind of like if the Washington Generals beat the Harlem Globetrotters, but instead of ruining basketball forever for like little kids, end up saying no, we like them. They're much better now. We want to make basketball still a better sport and everything else. It's just, oh god, I can't, I, I, I don't like this at all. It's okay, they can't hurt you anymore. Just make, 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 make the bad Cobra Commander go away. That's all right. Destro will make you some eggs or something, and you'll be fine. I don't want them. <laughs> Go to Denny's instead. Uh, and and one more thing about the art too is again, remember who I said about the art? It wasn't Herb Trimp. It wasn't you know Mike Vosberg yeah. or Paolo Vilnelli. It you know it was it's just it's just not good, man. It's not good at all. Your your turn. Go. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Well, I decided to go with Titan Comics Assassin's Creed Templars, so it's not the regular Assassin's Creed run. It's Assassin's Creed Templars number one, which is actually subtitled Black Cross, which is a five part series that they're going to run. Writer is Fred Van Lint, so I had hope right there because I I, I really do like his work. Artist is Dennis Calero. Two letters on this book, which you don't see very often. Richard Starkling. Uh, Starkings, excuse me, and Comics Crafts, Jimmy Bentecourt, and the colorist was also Dennis Calero. Now, basically, you're in 1920s London, of course, yep. that which kind of makes sense. Yep. And it starts off with, you see a guy, he's got a Templar's ring, but he's just not a good guy, and he's trying to shake this other guy down, and then in swoops in this... I guess you call him the Black Cross because I think they mentioned they kind of reference him as that, and he's almost like the Punisher for the Templars. I guess. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it kind of kind of a good 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 time to do that, I suppose. Where he's you know like kind of passing judgment on certain other members of the Templar organization, and I can't really say what he does because it kind of ruins what happens right. in the rest of the book. Right. So. Let's just say that there is a meeting of this Templar group at some point in the middle of the book. Now, they send somebody on a journey, okay? Yep. Here's why I have a problem with it. They give you no basis whatsoever that the person that they're sending on this journey that's a, that they say is a dangerous journey and won't be easy has any qualification to do this whatsoever. So pretty much like a suicide mission, more than likely. Basically, it's like they're sending him off to die, or they or they know he can handle it, but we have no idea, because there's no backstory, there's no basis, not even a page that says, okay, this guy has this training, he's been doing this for this long. No, it's almost like, well, this is your family legacy, so go ahead. It's not like having the Jedi 
inside of you and having the force inside of you and you know okay if you send someone you know has the jedi stuff in them then you're good like it was like when they sent ray off like ray we know ray's good because right. she's got the force no it's nothing like that at all it's like let's just send this guy to japan <laughs> i got a question so a while back i reviewed the assassin's creed book but my problem with it was i spent too much time going between the olden days with the Salem Witch Trials and the current days. Does that have a problem with this one as well? It was not. They actually stay in current times. Actually, one of the things that, was very, that kind of piqued my interest is it was losing me kind of in the middle. One of the things that kind of piqued my interest is that... God, can I spoil this? I really can't. Let's just say that there's an actual historical figure from Chinese history during that time that is part of this story. Okay. You do not see him. I'll tell you who it is off the air. Okay. You do not see him, but that's who he's going to see. I will okay. say this, though. There's something that happens at the beginning of the book that happens again later in the book that's like kind of a callback, yeah. which I actually kind of like, even though it's it's almost one of those things where, all right, well, now you know what's going to happen because this happened. I actually kind of liked it because it was almost like a calling card for the Black Cross, in a way. It was like, right. okay, well, you see this. Now you know it's about to go down. Something's about to happen. So, I don't know. I was kind of in and out in this book. I mean, it, it was kind of losing me in the middle. And then towards the end, it grabs me back. And then it, there was another point where it was like, okay, what was the point of this? So, it was kind of back and forth. So, I would say this is a very shaky pickup for me. Right. I'll definitely read the second issue, but the art art was really good. So I, I will say the art was fantastic. Colors were good. Not sure why you needed two letters on this book, but I mean, hey, give a couple letters some work. So just go ahead and put a couple in there. It just, it didn't seem necessary to me. The letters pretty much looked the same. Right. <laughs> I mean, if I the letters were different, like if one was like Victorian and the other one was yeah. like regular typeface, then I would understand it. There was none of that. So I don't know why you needed two letters on the book other than, hey, give a couple guys some work. Well, that's going to do it for Fort Reen, but come up next, we're going to be delving into Hell's Kitchen. That's right, we're reviewing Season 2 of Daredevil. Let's come up next, right here on Down Nerdy. Hey, this is comic book writer Ron Mars. You are listening to the Down and Dirty Podcast. Well, maybe by this point you're exhausted by all the binging, but we're still invigorated because, Nick, it was finally here. Daredevil Season 2. Now, before we even get started... This is going to be a review, which means there are going to be spoilers. Now, we know not everybody's been able to finish Daredevil at this point, so just tread very lightly on this review of ours because we're going to have a lot of spoilers because, Nick, we actually both ended up finishing all 13 episodes. Exactly. I finished Daredevil Season 2, like, last Saturday. <laughs> like It took me, like, two days to get through it. But then again, I'm single. I don't have a kid, so yeah. It took you know. me. It took me an entire week. I will say that, <laughs> but I did get through it. Not not something you want to watch with your kids. Let's just put that no. out there right now, and and that's fine too. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons they're doing this on Netflix. Right. And I was telling my wife, I said, anytime you see The Punisher on yeah. anything, yeah, yeah, it's not for kids. So let's do a little bit of a brief synopsis from season one, the end of that, to now where we are. So pretty much Wilson Fisk is in prison, and uh, the law firm of Nelson and Murdoch has pretty much gotten attention, but it's not like, oh my god, it's this new bustling law firm because they put Wilson Fisk yeah. away. They're still getting paid in, like, grapefruit and, like, chickens and Which pasta. is kind of hilarious, actually. It's very hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the peach cobbler is mine. <laughs> and, you know, I bring up, you know, Matt Murdoch and Foggy Nelson because I think 
yes, Punisher is in there. We'll get to him later. Electro is in there. We'll get to her later. Daredevil, of course, is the main hero in this. But this season, I think, was really all about Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson and their relationship going I, forward. I would throw Karen Page in there, too. I just oh, think yeah. the whole firm of Nelson and Murdock, it was about their dynamic and, like you said, their relationship together. And it, it definitely took some layers. Now, before we dive into too much here, here's something I want to ask you because I wasn't sure about this at first. Okay. How did you feel about the whole relationship angle between Matt and Karen? Honestly, it was one, it's one of those things where knowing the history he has with Electra, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, it's a stopgap relationship. You know, yeah. the, I think they were going to test the waters. I kind of knew from the beginning, like, okay, they're not going to go full in relationship. They're dating. They're going to test the waters. I said, but in the end, Electra, Electra to Daredevil is what Talia Al Ghul is to Batman. Like, yeah. there's no getting around it. You know what I'm saying? And the relationship is kind of very similar too. If you, yeah. if you actually think about it, but I got to tell you, it was a little. I didn't dig it that much. That was one thing that if really? I could say there was a minus in this for me, I didn't really dig the relationship. I, I mean, I, I understand kind of how it happened. You know, they work so closely together and they, they have a lot of, you know, feelings for each other, you know, and all the work that they've done and the fact that they basically saved her life, brought her up from nothing kind of thing. Not just literally within Daredevil, but figuratively too. They gave her a job. They gave her a purpose. Right. They kept her safe kind of thing. But I don't know. It just it, it was like one of those things where it's like if they didn't do it, I don't think it would have lost anything. Do you think that they were trying to force it because they knew like, okay, even we have Electra coming in, she's not really, you know, her yeah. not have a pass, but they, we need something present. You know what I'm saying? They need like yeah. a cog to kind of maybe cause a little bit more friction between Electra and, and Matt and even the firm itself. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure that they even had to do that. And I mean, this is kind of nitpicky on my part, but I mean, there was one yeah. thing that, that was one thing that I that kind of looked at. It was like, you know what? I could have done without this. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, I think they could have built that, you know, when when you get towards the towards the end and everything seems to be falling apart kind of thing, and she gets really angry with him and storms out and everybody just kind of says, screw Matt kind of thing, I right. think you could have got that anyway without having them have any kind of a relationship. Yeah, but I like how towards, like, the middle of the season we get the whole, the writers, okay, we're squashing this. Like, there's that scene I do where like she, that finds, squashed it where quickly, she yeah. finds, where she finds Electra in Matt's yeah. apartment and... It's like, okay, this is done. Like, th- this is it. And I like that. I kind of like how they teased a little bit. But then they're like, you know what? Solely these two are meant for each other. Yeah. You know, we, we know these two have been talking about Matt and Electra. They have a much better and deeper chemistry. Definitely. So, you know, this is just – it's a nice little – foray I should say into uh, more kind of dysfunctional law firm itself but I really want to talk about the relationship between Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson of course this season we brought to it brought it came to a head we knew it was on shaky grounds last season towards the end especially when he finds out that he is Daredevil yep. but now Nelson and Murdock is not a thing anymore Foggy went to the big time office building of Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it when I saw Jerry on that screen. Yes. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? I couldn't remember the name of the firm, but... Even though it was it's small, that's a really cool way to kind of tie those two that was together. A cool way, yeah. And they had the little Luke Cage Easter egg with Rosario Dawson's Night Nurse. She said, hey, I had a guy come in here, you know... Pendulous skin kind of thing. That's why I'm working the shitty shift. And we did get the Jessica Jones name dropped a little bit earlier little bit, on yeah. the show. I mean, it was just a name drop. But then when they tied that in at the end, I was like, oh, really? Yeah, let's do that. But <laughs> I mean, again, Matt Foggy, it's, it's one of those things where 
honestly, it's kind of like a little bit of an Alfred thing to go back to Batman where he's like, you know, I'm seeing you, Matt. You're I mean, here's a part in like suppose, the second episode where he finds him dying on top of a roof. Yeah, that was And, he, that and was then heavy. they have a stern talk. Where he's like, dude, you know how hard it was to not be seen while you're wearing that fucking costume and to get you into your apartment undetected? And it's one of those things where he's like, Matt, how, when am I going to get that call saying you're dead or you're not you know, coming going to come into the office? And I'm going to be like, oh, God, he's probably on the rooftop bleeding somewhere. Remember that scene in Goodwill Hunting where Ben Affleck says to Matt Damon, I keep thinking oh, yeah. one of these times I'm going to drive up to your house and you're not going to be there. Yeah. It was, there was kind of like that moment where he's like, I keep waiting for that moment where I'm going to show up at your apartment and seeing you laying dead on the floor kind of thing. Exactly. That, they call back to that for me. I was like, to me, this relationship and how it unfolded and everything that happened, this was the most heartbreaking thing, I think, about the entire second season. Exactly. And what's also great and was also I, I think was smart in how they kind of made that little bit of relationship crumble at least. Because they're still friends, it's just yeah. the law firm doesn't exist anymore. But I love how they made that whole aspect crumble by pretty much spending more time in the courtroom. And you get to see Foggy actually be this great lawyer. Awesome. And then you know Matt of course, is in there a little bit because you know he's doing his daredevil stuff and he's doing stuff for the lecturer, so he's not in the courtroom. But when Foggy's giving the, these these opening statements and everything else and the closing statements, you know, it's just I love how they did that because he's like, dude, you left me out the fucking dry here with Nelson and Murdoch, and mm. you know, you're only getting the Nelson part here. And I, you know, and there's parts where he says, yeah, well, Matt's not, you know, Matt's good at this, I'm good at this, you know, it's it's kind of like if. You know, you and I have the show. Well, Nick's good at this. James is good at that. You know, it's 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 a two way street, and you know, it's it's just one of those things where I loved the smartness. Where it wasn't just I'm mad at you because you're Daredevil. It's like no, I'm mad at you because you're Daredevil. I catch you bleeding and dying everywhere I go now. I have to worry about it. And also, your do your job itself in the daytime. It's our business is hurting because yeah. of this. I can't rely on you anymore. Was a yes. big was a big thing, and friends are supposed to be able to rely on each other. And then there's that whole other underlying aspect. If you know the whole mixing business with friendship and stuff yep. like that, that's also very difficult. So I like that there was so many layers to this, and I think that that storyline can kind of get lost in all the kicking and the punching and stuff right. like that. So I like the fact that. That just added to that other layer of depth that is one of the things that I think makes Daredevil such a great success. Speaking of kicking and punching, you know, Spike Lee, you know, has his every, every director has their signature shot. You know, Spike Lee has a dolly shot and so on and so forth. And um, here's a question for you What do you think about the hallway fight this season? Because, I mean, it's pretty much not a Daredevil season until there's a hallway fight. Yeah, pretty much. I thought it was really awesome. I like the fact that it kind of gradually went down the stairs kind of thing. I like that. There was all one shot, by the way. Which is pretty amazing. It's all one shot. And it's him versus this biker gang. And again, they I think they upped the ante on this one this time because you know, going back to season one, yeah, he fights in the hallways, throwing guys through doors. This one, he has just all he has is a chain and a gun. But his tape, his hands taped to it. So basically, he's you in this fight. Pretty he's got much. got one arm. Much he's got a chain. <laughs> he's pretty much me. He looks like a pretty much Dollar Store Mega Man. Because guy. you're not going to Dollar Store Mega Man. That's actually a good way to put it. Because <laughs> you know he's not going to fire the gun. So, no. I mean, that that's part of it. So he's a one-armed guy. The only thing I liked better about 
the fight in season one, and this is just a very small thing, because I thought they were both amazing. Probably, there are movie fights you don't see that are that are as good as this. But I like, the, the first one just felt so much more organic. And there was something about that that I just dug. And, and not that anything was wrong with this one, because it was amazing. Just the organic nature of the, the season one hallway fight, I think it would have been hard to replicate that anyway. So I kind of like that they went a different direction with this. Made it a little bit more brutal, added a little bit of a more challenging aspect, more bikers, and actually more people that he had to fight off. So I like that they upped the ante in that regard. And, and they didn't actually try to recreate the first one, because there was just so much perfection. In that yeah. first one, I think. Yeah, and speaking of brutal, let's just get right to it. Punisher. I mean, I mean that first ridiculous. scene. Ridiculous. When okay, for you who don't know, James and I, of course, we text each other a little bit updates. You know, of course, I started before him, but I text him. I said, "Dude, the first time you don't see Punisher, but you see what he's capable of doing, mm-hmm. and you're going to be holy shitting yourself." And I get a text from James the following day, dude. He took out the entire Irish mob in one. Like, rain of bullets. I mean, who does that? And they were talking about how, when they were going through the crime scene after, it's like, uh, pinpoint military precision. Right. And I'm like, and he was just picking them off. Oh, one yeah. One by one by one. And they were just getting, and they're firing back, and it's like, nothing. No. Because he's just taking them out. And I gotta tell you, John Bernthal, and you text me this, and I wholeheartedly agree, the best Punisher we've gotten Ever. Ever. I'm just saying, he makes Thomas Jane look like Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Okay? It's it's like that movie shouldn't have even existed, ever. Yeah, and what he does so much better than a lot of other people who've played Punisher before him is, there are times, he plays the whole anti-hero thing really well. Mm-hmm. There's times where, like, he's, you know, doing some good stuff, or he's talking, and you're like, okay, yeah, he's a key, because he was a good guy. Then he does something totally fucked up, and you're like, Oh yeah, you know, or, or carrying out a mission, and you're like, oh yeah, he's a psychopath. You know, he has no remorse. He's all, on, you know, he's he's going on pretty much a revenge thing and going after all these mob people and these gangs and everything else. And I mean, that scene with him in the prison in the hallway fight with him in the prison. Oh, that was brutal. Brutal. Unbelievable. And the fact, let's let's also talk about how he can take punishment. That scene oh, yeah. with the Irishman and the drill? Oh, Are yeah. you kidding me? I'll never look at Home Depot the same way again. <laughs> but, I mean, and let's talk about this because this just shows that the arc, the the thing that is Netflix, you couldn't have this good of a Punisher if this was on no. NBC or, sci- or Sci-Fi or FX or whatever. Yeah, I'll, I'll even go as far as to say HBO. Yeah. Yeah, quite <laughs> because, frankly. Well, I mean, you know, again, there's a there's a torture scene in there. There's, you know, involving the Punisher, and, and he's just a brutal character. I mean, I think my favorite Punisher scene outside of the graveyard scene. We'll talk about that in a second when he's pretty much spilling his guts out the Daredevil. He's bleeding out a little bit. The scene where he goes in the thrift store, and mm-hmm. he's going to to buy. He all he's going in there is just to buy a cop radio, a police scanner, so he can just listen to, you know police radio and updates like that even though it's kind of funny because in today's day and age we kind of have apps for police scanners yeah, that's you know, on our funny. phones yeah which is funny so he goes and he's about to leave and all of a sudden the guy goes hey you want some porn i got anything you want grannies and he goes oh and how about something a little bit more uh barely legal she's only 12 and you're like oh dude just shut the fuck up 
Like he was just about mm-hmm. to go. And then the one thing is you see he, he closes the door, flips the sign. And you're like, dude, you fucked up. Now, the guy deserved it because, you know, he's peddling oh, child born. Yeah. But, I mean, dude, shut up. Just shut up. And he just takes a bat and just wham right to his head. And you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> One of the things I love that they did, too, is it wasn't just about the brutality. They actually gave you the story about yes. his family, his military background, and about how he makes zero excuses yeah. for what he does. Not just about his family, not just about what he suffered with in the war. He's doing this because he legit thinks... This is the right thing to do and the right way to go about it. He's looking at this, I think, as a form of penance. When, you know, when he's getting rid of all this. Because, yeah, people say, well, it's revenge. Man. We just said it's you know, a revenge thing with him. But really, look at all the shit he's done with the war and just stuff leading up to this. And how he's kind of like, you know, I always want to be a family man and stuff like that. And then he kind of holds it against himself that he took them to the you know, Central Park, where the shooting happened, his family yep. got killed, and he holds it against himself, like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have taken him there. And he, this to him, this whole thing where he's doing with the mob and everything else and killing his, them off and these drug dealers and everything else is a form of penance and making up for that. And I gotta say, I'm a big fan that didn't show his family getting killed because, like, we yes. didn't need to see that. It's just, okay, here's what happens, here's how it went down, and you know, of course, you hate the district attorney after you find out everything that happens and how the whole thing went down. Yeah, I pretty much hated her from right from that scene where they screwed over that guy when oh, they were yeah. using him as bait. Yeah, that, oh, that's yeah. ship sailed for me. Oh, yeah. I looked at her. I'm like, you're a bitch, and I'm glad that you got shot. <laughs> yeah, she fucked. Anybody in that show who really deserved to die, I think it was really her a lot, than, you know, outside the bad people, I'll say. But, uh, no, it's just, again... I love the way that they handled Punisher. I, I think that this was a, really the best way they can do it. And, you know, what's great is he, you can see him as the season progresses. He's looking at Daredevil saying, you know, this guy is not a bad guy. And, you know, right. in, the, in the brief moments where they do work together, you felt like, oh, my God, this is an amazing team up. You know, you, you felt it. It felt it felt organic. Right. Once they finally came together, in a sense, you did feel that this is an amazing team up. And mini rant here for just a second. Okay. This is what happens when you allow people to tell a story. We don't have to rip it right from a page. It doesn't have to be shot for shot like you always say. This is what happens when we're allowed to tell a story. Now, let's keep in mind that Dar- the Punisher debuted... And Amazing Spider-Man yep. number 129. Amazing Spider-Man. Not Daredevil. So first appearance of Punisher in the Marvel Universe, let's call it, was in Daredevil. And there was nothing wrong with it. It was perfect. It worked. And there you don't and what's great is you didn't hear anybody screaming, oh he debuts and he debuts in Spider-Man. You can't bring him into Daredevil. Nobody said that. You know why? Because it was awesome and it works. When you allow people who are good at what they do and write a good story to do what they do and tell a good story, who cares if it comes directly out of a page of anything? Well, I think that the reason why people aren't saying much about him being in Daredevil or making his really his grand entrance in Daredevil not Spider-Man is because 
He works in Daredevil. You can't put him in Spider-Man, especially what they're going for now right. with the MCU in the theaters. That's, that's my point, you see? And, that's and, exactly my point. And when you, when you see the panels and the, and the stories that involve Punisher in the Daredevil comics, it's a lot darker, it's a lot more grittier, a lot more mature. So you can't pull off those right. things in a, in a movie, per se, with Punisher than you could with you know Netflix, where it's unrated pretty much. That is exactly my point. Allow people to do what they do and tell stories their way... And if it's done properly, if it's written well, it works out. And I think that a reason why, again, I hear a lot of criticism about Punisher, again, outside of the fact that he was good, is the you know is the fact that we haven't had a good Punisher up till now. You know what I'm saying? Like it's been the two movies we yeah. got were, were shit. You know? And, well, and, and think about this too. There's a oh, where's the skull shirt? He didn't need it. Okay, well, not having not having the skull shirt until the end. He didn't need it. It was not necessary at all. I didn't miss anything him not having the skull shirt right in the beginning. I thought he did fantastic without it. I do like the fact that they brought it in at the end, and you have to have it at some point. But he didn't miss anything not having it. He wasn't any less Punisher, you know? Oh, exactly. And again, it's just one of those things where I want to go back to that torture scene with the Irishman. This scene shows you how he's always thinking one, two steps ahead. That's his military training coming in, where he's like, where's my fucking money? Oh, it's in the van. Web's in the van. Van blows up when yep. you go to the money. He's always thinking one, he's always, he's. A, he, I think of all Marvel's characters, I think Punisher is the most tactical of all Marvel's characters. Oh, well, yeah, there's definitely no question about that. And like you said, the graveyard scene, let's get to that really quick before oh, we get yeah. to Elektra. I mean, if there's an Emmy moment, in in any comic book show, oh yeah, this is it, man. I mean, I I don't ca- I don't care wh- how you feel about comic book shows and how maybe they should stand on their own and not. No, that when he spills his guts like that, starts talking about his family and why he does what he does and all this other stuff to to Daredevil, it's amazing. Well, that and that's the thing is what's great about it is that that graveyard scene. Of course, it leads up to Punisher getting arrested because Daryl's like, I'm going to stay with you to make sure, A, you don't go anywhere, and B, that you don't die. And Daredevil's kind of doing some detective stuff in the, in the beginning. He's trying to, like, dig a little bit, get some research on him. And Punisher sees that and says, stop interrogating me, Red, you know, and stop, you know, stop digging. And then Daredevil finds a little bit of an angle and says, mm-hmm. what was that nursery rhyme you were saying when you, yep. you know, when we were back there? And he says... Well, it was a book I read to my daughter, and then that's how he gets into the whole thing of like, and it's very depressing. Like, you it is felt very sad depressing for him because he says, "He's like my daughter." It was, it was from a book that my daughter wanted me to read to her every night, and the one night that I said no, the next day was yep. when my family was murdered. Yeah, that's a killer, man. And so just... again, Punisher is that it's that penance, man. It's him making up for it. That's why he always says it's like one batch, two batch, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And, I mean, that scene was just, it was amazing. It really was amazing. There, there's so much rewatchability in just that scene alone. Oh, yeah. How brutal it is. It's just, it's incredible. And John Bernthal, again, he is the Punisher, man. He oh, yeah. just brought it to life in a way that nobody's ever going to be able to do again. So it's almost like if they don't do any more Punisher stuff, they should just stop. No, I think honestly, this guy is the Punisher. Honestly, the way season two ended, I could see, of course, after the Defenders, I could see a Punisher spinoff show. Right, because he takes off. He and, takes and off. He kind of does his own thing, and he finds that cache of weapons in that shed, and, yep. st- and he burns the house burns and all the house that stuff. Yep. So I would, I would rush a Punisher spinoff. I, I wouldn't even wait. I would rush it. I would push back whatever needs to be pushed to make this happen. 
Right. And now let's move on to our last new character, of course, Electra. I want you to start. What do you think? I got to be honest, man. You know, when you when you when you first saw it, you weren't quite sure what you were going to expect with Electra when you got the first look, even though we didn't get much. The way she brought the character to life mm-hmm. with that, you know, a little bit of snarkiness and that attitude, but again, but with that same kick-ass persona, yeah. and just the way they meet and how they told that story. I got to be honest. I think she did an amazing job, and I think she was a brilliant choice. And the way they wrote that character, not a way they've ever written that character before, and I thought it was great. Elodie Young did a great job as Electra, and here's why. Again, when her and Matt go on missions and her looking into these companies, and the whole thing with the hand, which we'll get to in a second, uh, I love the fact that I love the fact that she pretty much is very playful and that she's oh, yeah. also, but she's also a badass. Like, you know, she's like, Oh, come on now, Matthew. And then she, next thing you know, she's like snapping some dude's neck mm-hmm. and kicking their ass. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, again, th- if there's one thing that Netflix and Marvel has done lately is yes, let's take our, sh- our movies that done shittily like Daredevil and Electra and let's revamp them in this Netflix universe and by far and away, fuck, man, it was a resurrection. Netflix is the redemption circle of Marvel <laughs> movies. Now, yeah. I know it wasn't the MCU, like you said, because this was before there even was an MCU. But, you know, to, to bring Daredevil back to life and make that great again and to make Elektra great again, make Punisher great again, all in one season. Bravo yeah. for that. Bravo for that. And then let's just top it off. Let's finish it off. The hands in here, which means... Guess who's back? Fisk, of course, is back, which we call. We said he was going to be pulling yep. some strings in the prison. Yep. But our friend, Peter Shinkoda, Nobu, is back. Nobu lives. And there's a scene where they say how they can bring people back to life. I'm like, oh, Nobu's coming back. <laughs> but th- th- this is what smart was. They showed Fisk in episode eight. And then what did they do in episode nine? Show Nobu. Like yep. it was like I think if you want to talk about bringing two episodes and putting cliffhangers on each episode, this is what makes Daredevil I think the one show where you immediately have to binge watch because yep. each episode, especially eight and nine this season, end in a way where you're like, "Fuck, man, I can't go, I can't go to bed now. I gotta yep. watch this because you know they just showed Nobu or they just showed uh, Fisk, you know, and it's just." Fuck man, and the way they tied up those those ends too. Yeah, well, let's talk about that just for just for a brief second. Where you get somebody like Fisk, but he doesn't become a part of the last, you know, from episode eight on. He's there for a couple episodes that he needs to be there for, and then he's gone. But you don't miss him after yeah. the fact. You know what I mean? They tie it up, they do it well, and then they move on, and they don't make you. Even though he was a major character, and you know. Who wouldn't want more Wilson Fisk from Vincent D'Onofrio? Right. They tie it up in a way where you can move on and people aren't going to be at episode 11 and 12 going, hey, where's Wilson Fisk? I thought we were getting some of that. No, they tied it up. It's done. We move on. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that when you look at this thing really quick, and this is before we wrap up this review of Daredevil Season 2, what I liked is the way they ended it with Electra, of course, Spoiler here, she dies in the end. Which is pretty much, I mean, you kind of expect that. But we find out that she is like, what, the ruler of the the hand? She is black black sky. And so it's going to be like, ooh, what's going to happen in season three of Daredevil? How are they going to play this off? And I I like this, man. So without further ado, let's get to our ratings. I'll let you go first. You know, I I don't really know how you can't give this 10 out of 10. (laughs) <laughs> I, I would I would love to just to just to make things interesting 
find a way to just give it a nine or something. Yeah. But even with the with the, the very anything that I had a problem with was very very tiny right. in the show. So I can't nitpick it to the point of giving it anything more than a 10 because it's just fantastic. You, you outdid season one, which I thought was going to be very difficult. Um, it, there was no clutter with the new characters. You, you used who you needed to use when you needed to use them. They didn't bring them in right away, all of them. And, and the way that everything just progressed absolutely perfectly. I don't, I don't know how you don't give this a 10 out of 10. This season for me was really great because we, as you mentioned, sort of, we had some callbacks, some characters from season one that we haven't even mentioned. And the way they bring them back really makes a lot of sense. It's not like they just forced them in there. The writing is great. D'Onofrio, of course, for the little bit of Fisk we got in this season was fantastic. Um, again, I love what they did with the hand. I love how they made it this this thing. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, oh, here's this this you know group of ninjas. They give you a reason why the hand exists and how yes. they exist. Yes. And and the whole and, and with Pierce Shinkoda, I'm not saying it's because he's a friend of ours, but my God, was he fan, phenomenal in this? Because it's just, not just his fighting either. His, no, because his acting was great. He, his acting was great, but also this season we got a lot more depth to Nobu as a mm-hmm. character and what his mission is. Again, he is kind of the Rachel Ghoul of the Daredevil universe, and mm-hmm. we see what his plans are and the way they did with Elektra and the Punisher is just great. I'm going to give this 10 bloody carnival tickets out of 10. Bloody size out of 10, I'll go with. How about that? <laughs> it's a lot of blood. A lot of blood. <laughs> well, watch the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's going to do it for our view of Daredevil. Come next. You got a bunch of nerd news heading your way. Stay tuned. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's that time, nerds, to get into those warp pipes and see what's going around the internet because it's time for what, James? Nerd news! And the reason why I mentioned warp pipes is, well, because Nintendo, as we all know, has the Wii U console out right now. However, this week, a report from a Japanese paper called Nikkei, or Nikkei, I should say, said that Nintendo, guess what? 2016, at the end of it, we're, they're going to be halting Wii U Productions. Yeah, and make sure you get, you keep a good handle on those remotes and screens, too, because they've already stopped making the Wii U accessories, according to the paper as well. So i got to be honest, though, Nick. I mean, we heard about the, the NX that was going to be coming out here pretty soon. Well, they haven't actually officially announced anything as far as we know, but we know it's coming based on right. all the stuff that's leaked out. So, I mean, can you, can you really say you're altogether surprised that this is happening? Well, no, because in 2016, well, this year, I should say, they're going to be coming out with the NX Portable release, and then next year, is going to, they're going to have the home console. So I'm not shocked. Now, this is a console, of course, Wii U, which just has over 12 million sales, pretty much, which isn't a lot, really. I mean, it by sounds standards. like a lot, but it's it not. Sounds like, but by console standards, you see what PS4 and, and Xbox One are doing, it's not that much. This doesn't shock me at all. I mean... There were problems from the beginning with fans, and they were saying, like, you know, a problem with the Wii U pad. I mean, you even said this yourself. We talked about it the other night. You said, I was going to get a Wii U, but I saw, you know, we, we saw the Zelda thing, and you're like, oh, it's got, yeah, I look at the game pad. I, gotta look at my, I can't look at my big screen TV. I got to look at my game pad. I look at my items list right. and everything I else. Hate that. And that's the problem. And, and that was the problem with the Wii U. But this doesn't shock me at all. Now, of course, Nintendo came out recently and said that's not true, but Nakai has a really great track record when it comes to these reports and these rumors with Nintendo. So, I mean, I, this is true, I think. I mean, again, the NX, they're trying to push us really, really hard. You had the whole 
rumors about this controller if it's a, like a video video controller or whatever like that we don't know if it's the actual thing but yeah which i'm not sure about that if that's the angle they're gonna go because i don't like playing you know like how the games that are on your phone that have like that right. controller on it and stuff that's kind of like you can see it but you can't yeah right. um, i don't i'm i'm not really a huge fan of that so i don't know how i would feel if they decided to actually do that with the controller but i mean this doesn't shock me all. I mean, sales aren't the greatest. I mean, granted, sales in Japan jumped after po- Pokemon Tournament came out, but that's Japan. And I mean, I'm sorry, but Pikachu was the mascot for the World Cup team like yeah. a few years ago. So it's not surprising to see that Wii U sales jumped in Japan after uh, Pokemon Tournament came out. And, and we're not talking about sales in Japan either here. We're no, talking about sales worldwide. in the U.S., which are which – are, yeah, that's a pretty pretty big part of the market. Not that Japan isn't. And, of course, Nintendo's always going to do pretty well in Japan because that's where they're based out of. But you got to think U.S. sales as well. And, and Nintendo hasn't been up there in U.S. sales in a while. I think that the, re- the, the when the original Wii came out, it did so well because it was new, it was different. It was definitely family interactive, which is something Nintendo's always been a champion of. And it was just that newness and that cool factor that made the Wii so successful. But then when they came out with the Wii U, it was like, all right, it's kind of the same stuff, except for now we have a controller with a screen on it, and there's some subtle differences there. Uh, Even LEGO Dimensions couldn't really save Wii U because that was also available on PS4 and other platform, and, and not only that, but think about it. The the Amiibos, I don't think those really caught on other than people liked collecting them. Right, you know? yeah. Yeah, they were pretty much Nintendo's be- version of Beanie Babies, you know. And, and But I think that, you know, final thing I'll say before we move on to our next story is, you look at this, what we say, Nintendo has to, we should, should go back to just strictly being handheld. You know, I think NX is Nintendo's, Hail Mary pads. That's the Doug Flutie Boston yep, College yep. Hail Mary. If the NX comes out and it, and it doesn't do good, it's hard to be. It's hard to be Reggie Fizeme and everybody else in Nintendo and saying, "God, you know, we should stick to the home market still." And think about that. I don't mean to cut you off. Just think about this too: is that it's a lot harder to recover from the failure of a console yes. launch than a handheld launch. I mean, look at PlayStation didn't do so great with the PSP. Okay. And there are other handhelds that didn't do quite as well. Mm-hmm. But they survived that because the console sales were so amazing. Now look at this. If it's the other way around and they have another console failure but the handhelds do okay, that's going to be tough to recover from. Exactly. I mean, it's all going to come out. It's all going to depend on what games come out. But speaking of games, James, a couple of games in return to movies, of course, are going to be Ubisoft. Products, of course, we all know that Michael Fassbender Assassin's Creed is, is in production yep. and getting ready to come out, I think, next year or whatever. But also, according to New Regency, they reported interest in turning that and Splinter Cell into movie franchises. Which, let's hit the pause button here for a second. <laughs> None of this has come out yet, okay? Right. And, and I know the video games aren't the same. Go back and listen to our video game movies show that we did last year. We we realize that it's not the same. It's not like turning Mario into a movie anymore. I mean, that right. that's almost near impossible. Video games are more story-driven and more cinematic than they've ever been. But it's still a video game movie, and we are still having trouble making a really good one. So to greenlight a sequel already, before you even have the first frame of this movie hit any theater... That, to me, is a pretty big risk. Well, remember, we have Warcraft coming out, and that's a risk, too. Uh, I think the problem when it comes to video game movies like this, and I want to mostly speak about Splinter Cell for a second. When you see Splinter Cell, say, for instance, they do Greenlight Splinter Cell movie, and we get it, we go see it. What 
it was going to differentiate seeing Splinter Cell and going, oh, yeah, that's a video game movie from, oh, yeah, it's just another spy movie. You know what I'm saying? Right. And not only that, but, I mean, think about it. Assassin's Creed isn't even that far along. I mean, that, that's not no. released until, what, September or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I think so. So we've only seen, have we even seen a full trailer? I don't think we've even seen we've, a full trailer. We've only gotten pictures. Yeah. So, I mean, and then Splinter Cell's not even nearly that far along. And we, I mean, Tom Hardy's not even a sure thing for that yet, I don't think. But, I mean, how do you greenlight a set? What have they seen? I, mean, I, I know Variety reported the story, but what have they seen that made them go, you know what, we need to do more of these based on the small stuff that they have? I, I think that, you know, you look at this, and here's, what, here's how you can make a good video game movie. I know it's a rarity, but here's how you can do it. Get a director in there who is a fan of the games. Like, yes. legit, like, like every director we've seen direct a, a video game movie, you can tell... They weren't the biggest fans. They're just, you know, right. film people, you know. Right, right. But I want diehard games. You know, like a movie, a video game movie I really want to see. I don't care how they do it. I want to see an Earthworm Jim movie. But, again. <laughs> an Earthworm Jim movie. Yeah, god damn it. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Oh, God. Hell yeah. It doesn't like getting high and watching Earthworm Jim movies, you know. <laughs> That's unimaginable, actually. But <laughs> don't think it can happen, though. I guess <laughs> I know, right? But again, I, I think that that's how you make a good video game movie. But when you look at these two properties, uh, mostly Splinter Cell, you look at that and you go, "Okay, how is this going to be possible? And how we can be able to differentiate this from other spy movies?" Right. You know, uh, Assassin's Creed. You have, uh, you know, it's a genre film pretty much, and deals with going between two different eras. So you can, you know, say, okay, this is a legit superhero movie. Whereas right. with Sam Fisher, you're like, okay, it's a dude who at one time was a double agent. What are we going to do here? And as you mentioned earlier, video games now are, are more cinematic than they have ever been. So is there really a need for video game movies? Right. That's that's part of the point that we brought up on our video game movies podcast when we did it last year was that they're movies in themselves and they're allowed to tell a longer story because it's a video game. And other than the, the playable aspects that you have to work through on your own, I mean, you get really good story. You actually get character depth in the now. So I agree. I mean, I understand the temptations there. Money's there. But that doesn't necessarily mean you need to do it. But one video game movie that I think that we both have a lot of hope for is Tomb Raider based on how the first game went. And now we kind of are getting an idea of somebody that might be playing Laura Croft. Exactly. And this, you know, coming after all these rumors of saying she was in talks of playing Lara Croft or Lara Croft. Daisy Ridley has come out and said, yes, I have been in talks to play, you know, Lara Croft and Tomb Raider. And she's pretty much said, quote, I'm waiting for someone to say, I want you. Let's do it. So, you know what that means? She's going to be Lara Croft. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I like the fact that uh, when the Hollywood Reporter reported the story, they had that quote from John Boyega that said, I was playing Tomb Raider and I loved it. But I was was going, I was like, this is you, Daisy, this is you. You need to be Lara Croft. And I mean, it's hard to argue. I mean, I know that we were talking about Victoria Atkins when we, Victoria Atkins, when we interviewed her for uh, Evie Fry and Assassin's Creed uh, not too long ago, she'd be a good Lara Croft too. And I'm not saying that, you know, she shouldn't still be in consideration. Right. But at the same time, you look at Daisy Ridley and after her work in Star Wars The Force Awakens, right. I, how do you not pick the hot hand? That's And that's the thing. That's what's come down to it. Is that she's the hot hand. She's the – I want to say this. She's the new it girl, I think. Right. Or is going to be the new it girl uh, in Hollywood because, you know, her you – know, again, she has a Star Wars thing happening. 
you know, and now, hey, let's venture out more. And be the it girl while you can, too. Yeah. Or even the it guy. If you're hot right now, you take everything that you can get as long as you want it, of course. Take all that stuff that you want now because it can be fleeting. Let's face it. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. So what would you, before I move on to our final story, what would you want to see of, if Daisy Ridley, okay, she's been cast. Let's just say she's been cast as Lara Croft. What do you hope to see out of a, out of a new Tomb Raider uh, movie? I, I loved the, the reboot game. I thought it was one of the best reboots ever in video game history. It was just so well done when they put out this new Tomb Raider game. I liked how smart, how vulnerable Lara was, but what I want to see if Daisy Ridley can pull off, and I think she can, is the grittiness that they added to Lara Croft in this game. And her survivability was always there, the playfulness was always there, but they gave her vulnerability and grit, and I really want to see if Daisy Ridley can pull that off. And and I really want to see that as well. I mean, in the game itself, we see Lara Croft, you know, getting st- shit stabbed and getting hurt, and you know, yeah. bones breaking, and 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 her, you know, like I said, her going through hell, literally going through hell, uh, and and that's what I would like to see out of Daisy Ridley in a new Lara Croft movie. And also, again, this is a game and a franchise built upon exploring. I want exploring. I don't want it to yeah. be, you know, I mean, we're going to probably get the typical. There's an evil person. They're both hunting for the same trinket or trying to find the same trinket, you know, but we got to get there before them. And we kind of know how it will more likely end, but I want that sense of chase, but I also want that sense of, you know what, let's slow down a bit and just breathe in where we are right now. Yeah, where let's these do a little bit of the are. exploration aspect. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to go in every tomb like you do no. in the game, but yeah, give me some of that. Give me some of that archaeological bent in that movie. I think, that, I totally agree. I think that that would be a great way to go and maybe it'll have a post-credit sequence. Who yes, knows? Yes, maybe three of them, like uh, some war supposedly might have. And the uh, reason why I say that is because, well, of course, Joe Russo, of course, one of the Russo brothers, the directors of Captain America Civil War, did an interview, and he pretty much said, well, he didn't pretty much say, he said, quote, we can't say who is going to be in it, but we can say there certainly could be one, two, or maybe three. So here's a question I want to ask you, James. As somebody who, of course, we see all these movies, you know, all, whenever they come out, uh, is the post-credits thing getting to the point where you're like, come on, is it, is it, is it as special now as it was when we first saw the first one with, with uh, uh, Nick, uh, Nick Fury and Iron Man? It, it can be, but I think we're getting out of control now. I mean, I think, and they were kind of, when they were talking to Forbes, they kind of joked around and said, okay, there's probably not really going to be three. Right. But, I mean, it, it is getting a little out of control. Let's say there are three. Here's the danger. You found something that was cool and that people loved because it was unique and it was different. Okay, but once you start overdoing it, the cool factor goes away. Right. I mean, I like the fact that, you know, this is something you can do to get people to sit through credits, which they normally wouldn't do and stuff like that. And I'm sure the people that make these movies appreciate that. But at the same time, uh, I don't know, man. It's just, it doesn't make it cool anymore. I mean, like the Deadpool one was great. Right. Because you got the cartoon, first of all. Then you got the tease ahead to the next movie, which I know Marvel loves to do with these things. But don't take the cool factor away. Yeah, I, I think that when you when you look at these post credit sequences, and I think I'm gonna change what I think it'll be. If there's gonna be one, which I know there will be, I think it's gonna be. I don't think it's gonna be anything Doctor Strange related because remember we still haven't seen the origin film yet. 
We do get, but who else do we right. get in here? We get Black Panther. I think we're going to see Claw kind of get that little blaster on his arm, or it's going to be something to have to do with Black Panther, I think, more than anything. I think you're right. I think it's going to be Black Panther related. I actually think we're going to get some Infinity War tease. I mean, I know that's way in the future, but I think we're going right. to get a tease of Infinity War. Maybe we get a little peek at Captain Marvel? Maybe? Maybe, Maybe they're going to do a reveal on a casting choice there or something Ooh, like that? Oh, they did that. You know people would lose their shit? Yeah, because, I mean, people have been clamoring for that, and we know that there's been rumors for there to... Remember, we didn't expect Thanos yeah. to be in a post-credit teaser either. Now, granted, the guy that's playing him there isn't going to be playing him in the movie, but, I mean, if you get a glimpse... Of a Captain Marvel or something, or even like a like a Nova per se, maybe you know yeah. something that you're not expecting like that. I think if you're gonna do a post credit sequence, that would be a cool one to do. Exactly, exactly. But again, final thing I want to say about this is when you're doing a post credit sequence, again, one, two, I would say are fine. But yeah, remember these movies now, like Captain America, even Batman vs Superman, they're gonna be two hour, two and a half hour movies. Yeah. I don't want to be sitting in the theater for three hours waiting for a 30-second clip. And let me tell you, and I'm not just speaking for myself, I'm speaking for parents everywhere. When you've got kids that you're either taking to the movie or having to get a babysitter for to take to go to a movie yourself, <laughs> that's a lot of extra time that you need to devote. So just keep that in mind, Hollywood. Think of it this way. The, a babysitter is kind of like a human parking meter. <laughs> you don't yeah, want to be exactly. like, you're like, shit, we got to get home. Rose got to pay a meter more, like $10 and, more. And that's like parking on the street in New York City on New Year's Eve. Okay? <laughs> yes. That's exactly. not cheap. Exactly. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Come next. Grab your morphers and grab your zords. Because guess what? We send out Kyle Higgins, the writer for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers from Boom Studios. And that's come next right here on Down Nerdy Podcast. This is cartoonist Scotty Young, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, one of the things we were very excited about when we found out about it is that Power Rangers comics were coming back in a big way and with Boom Studios, no less. We're very happy to have writer extraordinaire of the new Power Rangers series. It's Kyle Higgins. Kyle, how you doing today? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. No problem, Kyle. It's awesome to have you on. I myself am a huge Power Rangers fan. I'm somebody who grew up with the series, and it's just, I love what you're doing with the series, so again, it's an honor to have you on. As we know, the Power Rangers have a deep roots within the 90s, so, you know, as a writer, when you have to adapt something for, in the current times, as you, you are with the series, uh, how do you write things and put things in a way where people who grew up in the 90s, like myself, don't feel alienated when they pick up this book and they see that it's not really set in the era that they finally remember the power rangers in uh i mean that's a, that's a really good question um to me it's about um it's about staying true to the core of uh of the series and, and the core of of the concept you know the eras aren't as important to me um i didn't want to write a 90s nostalgia book personally like that doesn't interest me what did interest me was doing a new version on Mighty Morphin and exploring these characters through, you know, a little bit more of a contemporary lens. And that has to do with the, the everything from the style of art to the style that I'm writing the book in. So, you know, I don't know. I don't, I haven't, I try not to give it too much thought. At the end of the day, I'm writing a story that interests me. And, you know, I'm trying to highlight the things about these characters in the world that, I was attracted to when I was a big fan of the show, you know, when I was a kid. So kind of in that vein, I'm writing the Power Rangers more as I remember them making me feel and less as I remember them, if that makes any sense. 
Oh, so, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It actually makes perfect sense because my next question is that I'm not somebody that grew up during the Power Rangers craze. I'm a little bit older, but I still found myself when I was reading your first two issues that I really enjoyed it. So how important was it for you to stay true, like you said, and do your own thing, but also draw new readers in by doing things like having Bulk and Skull do a podcast and stuff like that and do a new spin on the Green Ranger story? Well, part of it, I mean, there, there's there's always the... Um, there's always the allure and uh, the goal of, of being accessible to new readers. And that goes, that goes across the board, whether it's Power Rangers, whether it's, um, you know, Batman, whether it's something that's well-established or not well-established. I mean, it's just kind of in my DNA as a writer. When I first started at DC, that was something that was really kind of hammered into me. Um, it was, it's the, the age-old, you know, Stan Lee quote of every comic is someone's first. And, um, even in like, you know, in, in contemporary times, you go, you read Mark Wade does it better than anyone. Um, whether it's the, the Archie update right now, which we can talk about in a little bit, cause that's, a, a, you know, that's, there are definitely parallels there between that and what I'm doing on Power Rangers, um, or his run, fantastic run with Chris Samney and Paula Rivera and Marcus Martin on Daredevil. You pick up any one of those issues cold and you learn everything you need to know within that issue about Daredevil and, and, and you go back to the early days of comics. Uh, well, I shouldn't say of comics, but I'll, I'll just say of the Silver Age and, you know, the Marvel era and, and that stuff is all super accessible. So that's just something that I am very conscious of. Um, I also wrote a book for DC, um, Batman Beyond 2.0, that actually wasn't that accessible because it was a continuation of the cartoon from the 90s. And it, that's, that was kind of the point of the book was to continue the storylines and the continuity that were established in the cartoon that was now, you know, 14 or 15 years old. And so I learned a lot in doing that, both good and bad, about kind of the, the drawbacks of, of doing a book like that where, you know, it's catered purely towards people who were fans of the show and not that accessible and open to new readers. And that was something that, you know, I just kind of took stock of and, and, when it came time to do Power Rangers, it wasn't, that wasn't really something I wanted to do again, you know? So I guess, or I guess I should say that was something that I was very aware of um, how that kind of book developed. And I wanted to do something with Power Rangers that felt different and felt new. I wasn't, like I said before, I wasn't that interested in doing a nineties nostalgia book. I also wasn't that interested in, you know, telling a story that slots in between, you know, episodes, something right. or something like that. And, you know, from the standpoint of where this book begins with um, Tommy having just joined the team, you could say like, oh, well, that definitely slots between existing episodes. But I think as the series moves forward and, and you, you guys start to see where we're taking the story, you'll understand that we kind of are doing our own thing. And And to me, updating the era was was a part of that. It was something that helped me creatively um, not get stuck in the, you know, what's been kind of done before trap. So I don't actually remember your original question. Actually, but, you, uh, you answered it in spades. So you got it, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to talk about something you mentioned about, you know, having like, you know, Tommy just join a team. And as we've seen in both the zero issue and an issue one, the series does follow where it appears to be kind of, the before, maybe a little bit of aftermath of that famed Green Ranger saga. So what is it about Tommy and the type of mental hold Rita has over him in this series that makes her relationship just so unique, uh, especially in this as the series progresses? 
a couple things. Um, uh, well, I'll answer them. I guess it's it's really from two points of view. From a character standpoint, um, the idea of being handpicked by forces of evil to be their agent of destruction is really interesting to me. You know, um, what does that say about you? Not to mention, like, at least the other Rangers were given a choice about taking on powers. Like, Tommy was never given a choice by Rita. He was he was brainwashed and uh, mm-hmm. imbued with these abilities and these powers and then turned into this weapon uh, against his will. And, and you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the qualities that I find so interesting about uh, in a character like the Winter Soldier um, are there in Tommy uh, or in that ass or there, yeah, or in that kind of wheelhouse. The show never really explored that side of things um, that, you know, it's, it's a bit tragic when you, when you really kind of break it down. So that was really interesting to me from a character standpoint is exploring kind of what it would be like to be given it's kind of a different spin on the kind of hero's quest, right? Of like, Hey, you're meant for great things. So, you know, become a hero and go do those great things. This is kind of a, Hey, you're meant for, for terrible things. Uh, and now it's a redemption story trying to, to find your way and whether, whether you are what they say you are or not. Right. Right. Um, in addition to that, though, from a logistics standpoint, I wanted, I knew, I knew I needed a, a different window into the into the series. I didn't want to tell new origin stories. You know, if we were updating the era and we were kind of doing our own thing, set modern day, the question became, well, where do you start the story? Um, I didn't want to kind of start from square one um, because there is kind of a general understanding of what the Power Rangers are. Um, a general understanding that, you know, I wanted to refine and kind of recontextualize and focus in the opening of issue one, which is the kind of the Balkan Skull video that you guys are talking we're talking about before. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm just, I'm very sick of origin stories. Um, so it became a question of like, okay, well, where the heck do we start this thing? And it kind of hit me one night as I was going through old episodes that they never really explored Tommy joining the team. And when you think about all of those qualities that I just described about the character and, and the potential um, to mine that for drama, uh, and it speaks to a lot of the, you know, kind of the Cold War aesthetics and, you know, the ambiguity and who can you trust kind of um, qualities that I really like in in, uh, in stories that I tell, mm-hmm. it also served as kind of like the epitome of what the Power Rangers are about. Um, they've always been about the importance and power of friendship and teamwork. And what better way to um, explore that than through the addition of a new member to the team? You know, I've talked about this in other interviews, but any LeBron James basketball team in the last five years has always looked great on paper. Um, and it, but inevitably it takes a lot of time for them to come together. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's infighting and there's a dynamic, there's a change in dynamics that happens whenever someone new is brought into a group and, and people kind of, it's just human nature. They kind of tend to, um, create little, um, you know, side relationships and well, how do you feel about so-and-so and well, how did, how do you know? And then 
it's just all very, it's all very kind of um, muddy, you know, early on. And oh, yeah. when you're when you're looking at um, uh, a set of characters who are more powerful together, and that's really what they're about, um, and then you you throw in kind of a new um, person into that mix, I, I thought that that was a really nice and interesting place to start our kind of updated take on on Mighty Morphin. I actually never thought of Tommy. I, now that I've now you mentioned, I actually really see that the parallels between Winter Soldier and Tommy because Winter Soldier was Tommy's Green Ranger and Captain America when Bucky became Cap, that was Tommy becoming the White Ranger. So kind of like a rebirth. That's very interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. I got to give credit to my editor uh, Daphna on that one too. Um, she's a big Winter Soldier fan, and mm-hmm. I was I was kind of mapping out the green ranger story and we just started talking about um the aspects that she really liked and and we kind of landed on on some of that stuff that um you know it was kind of the (laughs) you know it it, well it's it's a lot of the same kind of qualities that you know i've also said before there's a bit of a manchurian candidate kind of vibe to it too and and uh you know that that stuff is really powerful and, and and stands the test of time for a reason you know you know, it's funny, and, and when you make that parallel, and I was just thinking as I get to my next question, where it, there's kind of a Winter Soldier parallel here, too, with Civil War coming up, because we see the Rangers kind of want to trust Tommy, but they mm-hmm. all have somewhat of a different opinion of him. So we see that play out a little bit more in future issues, and could it actually even create some doubt in Zordon as well, since he kind of brought him into the fold? Well, yeah, I think that's all. I, I think, yes, we'll definitely see. we'll definitely see that um, explored further in future issues. Um, I mean, that to me is, that's what grounds the series. You know, it's, it's about, I've kind of described Power Rangers before uh, as like, it's, it's the, you know, the, the, the click drama of high school mixed with weight of the world, um, responsibility of, you know, the X-Men or the Avengers, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe not so much the X-Men because it's the X-Men are always about, you know, outsiders and, and whatnot, but like it's all of the, the kind of best qualities. The power Rangers are all the best qualities of teenage superhero stories, but done slightly differently, you know, with, oh, yeah. with, you know, giant robots and monsters. I mean, how can you go wrong? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's like, it's like extreme maturity. It's like these kids you know, are, are reaching like that 13, 14 year old phase. And it's like, Boom! The whole way of the world is just literally falls on their shoulders. Now they have to save it. Not only are they like teenagers, but now they have to save the world from these giant monsters, right. and it's right. it's a lot to take care of. And yeah, you, you, you know, yeah. And and at at its heart, though, like the the high school kind of the relationships and the interpersonal dynamics are what gives it its kind of heart and soul, though. You know, so so to answer your question, yes, that's all those are all aspects that we'll be exploring further. Um, Cause without them, it's just a lot of fighting. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so here's the thing you mentioned giant robots and monsters. So I got a question for you. If you could uh-huh. drive one of the original Zords, which one would it be and why? Uh, that's a pretty good question. Um, as a kid, I really wanted uh, the T-Rex Zord. Um, but I guess as I've gotten older, like, I don't know, I'd be really scared of stepping on stuff you know like i'd be very conscious of <laughs> like i don't know like it, it, it'd be weird 
Um, <laughs> so maybe I'll go saber tooth tigers or is, is pretty sweet. Um, yeah, there you go. Super agile, oh, yeah. uh, fast, um, comes in a, you know, kind of vintage yellow, uh, color. So, uh, I'll go with that. Although dragon's Zord is also, is oh. also a favorite oh, yes. of mine. Um, so <laughs> there's a pretty, there's a pretty sweet sequence with the dragon's Zord in issue two. Um, it's the opening of issue two that I think people will get a kick out of. Well, whenever you saw um, Tommy pull out the, the, the dragon sword, you knew it was, knew it was just going to go down. You knew like, yeah. Oh, it's going to yeah. happen. It's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> You know, it's funny, we talk about the original series and, and even the first Power Rangers movie that came out, and one of the things that I know Power Rangers for is the really serious puns that they dropped during the show for humor, so are there any that kind of stick out to you as kind of hilarious from past episodes or even awful, because there actually wasn't a whole lot of that in the book, which I kind of appreciated. <laughs> like I said, uh, I'm writing Power Rangers as I remember it making me feel and less about. <laughs> yeah. I would want to, I would want to forget that too, actually. <laughs> well, you know, that is the interesting thing. Like when you go back and you look at the series, um, especially as you know, I'm 30 and to go back and look at it, uh, <laughs> I'll blame it on my, uh, my, my overdeveloped sense of cynicism of the world, uh, that happened, <laughs> happened after the age of, I don't know, 23, uh, started happening after the age of 23. And, um, so I'll blame it on that and not the original source material, but to go back and watch the original stuff now is, is a little, it's a little dicey for me. Um, <laughs> you think but, it's dicey for you. I'm 36 and <laughs> Nick said, you need to watch the power Rangers movie because I've never seen it before. And I was like, wow. Some of the stuff they do, do and say on there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the CG doesn't age well in the movie. Oh, no, no. At I all. feel like we're on um, the same wavelength here, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there, there is a, what I remember of the show or remembered of the show um, and how I felt when, um, you know, the first ads ran for green with evil and it's like, Holy cow, there's a, there's a sixth ranger and he's a bad guy. You know, it's like, it's kind of all the great qualities of, um, of like doppelganger villains, you know, like when you're, when you're reading Spider-Man, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, Venom was, was so popular for so long in Spider-Man where um, I'm trying to think of other examples too, like, where it's like the like qualities Flash, of the hero, but you know, uh, but the kind of the dark reflection of them, not to mention Venom had just a absolute killer design oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. and the green ranger had a killer design as well. You know, actually a friend of mine, um, Ryan Parrott, who's a super talented writer and he, he and I, he did, um, so the last couple issues at Gates of Gotham with me and he writes uh Star Trek uh comics for IDW with Mike Johnson. He's also um he's got a new book coming out through uh through Aftershock Comics. He when I, I remember like having conversations with him early on when I was starting at DC and, and, and coming up with characters for Nightwing and everything and he was like, dude, he's like, I believe more like it's like eighty percent of a villain that, that pops is the design like the most memorable characters. And you could say that about, um, 
about the heroes as well, but like the characters that really kind of stand the test of time and, and are re- really kind of break out all have really great kind of designs. And that's oh, not to yeah. say that the character themselves, characters themselves aren't interesting and aren't compelling, but in comics, especially and in superhero in the superhero kind of medium, oh, yeah. um, you know, the design is like way more than half the battle. Well, yeah, yeah, it's got to so. jump off the page, man. Well, yeah, because I mean, yeah. I mean, you look at Tommy, for example, in the Green Ranger, like he was green. He was the only Ranger that actually wore a shield on his costume. Right, right. He yeah. had his own, like, like while everybody else had their own Zord, which came to one giant Zord, he had his own one giant Zord. So it's like, yeah. you know, he was kind of an amalgamation, a, a combination of all of them in a sense. And you see him on the screen, like you're like, like that's why, you know, he was my favorite. He's my favorite Ranger. So I'm like, he had a shield. He had his own. Way to call his own Zord. He well, was yeah, just... he was the he was the outlier. He was the kind oh, of yeah. ranger, yep. you know. Oh yeah, and and Kyle, before we let you go, man, where can people find you on social media? Uh, Twitter's probably the best spot, although I don't tweet very much. Uh, Kyle D Higgins. Well, as you know, Power Rangers issues zero and number one are both out from Boom Studios right now at your local shops and, of course, on digital. As far as issue two is concerned, April 6th, you're going to be looking for that one in the same places to find more info as well at boom-studios.com. It's Kyle Higgins. Thank you so much for joining us this week. My pleasure, guys. Have a good one. Well, James, dare I say that interview was more phenomenal. Oh, yeah. It absolutely <laughs> was. I wasn't sure if you were going to, like, hate it if I said it or not, because you asked him, like, you know, about the whole cheesy lines and the puns. I like so. how he tried to mentally block it out completely. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry, Kyle, but it happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm rewatching all the seasons right now. I'm, like, 20 episodes into the first season. I'm, like... Oh, there's so many cringeworthy moments. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and that was part of the allure of the series, though, especially when you're younger. When you're younger, you, you kind of appreciate stuff like that a little bit more right. at times, too. So, And you don't even really notice it. You're just like, ah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, but again, I mean, you know, as a huge Power Rangers fan, I love that Kyle, just from his answers, just talking to me off mic, this is a guy who gets it. This is a guy who does his research, who knows what he's writing, oh, yeah. who knows the, the fans that he's writing for. This series from Boom, you know, My Work Power Rangers, is phenomenal. It really is. It has something for everybody. And also, this is, you know, this is why I'm like, damn, I kind of wish I had kids because this is a comic series. I could get them in right now. Right. I mean, sure, I had you know you have Netflix, which has all the episodes, but you know, in terms of just reading and getting them into it, because again, this pretty much takes place after the Green Ranger saga, kind of you know, right afterwards, and and it's really interesting. I love the dynamic between Tommy and Rita, and how she's kind of like still has a grip on them. What they're doing with Scorpina, I mean, it's it's really really great. And like I said, and I was being honest. I mean, you don't really have to be a fan already to enjoy the series i tended to like reading the series more than i liked watching the actual show so (laughs) i mean it was kind of cool for me and this is one of those things where i was like okay if this is kind of where we're going with the movie now if this is the tenor that we're going to have coming up for the for the reboot of the uh, franchise movie wise i think that that's going to be the right way to go 
Exactly. I mean, that's the thing too. Is we didn't mention that that they had the new reboot movie coming out and stuff like that, and it's gonna be really interesting to see where they go from this comic to that movie because you know it's not gonna be money more if it's gonna be something different. I believe. Right. Exactly. You know, it's still Power Rangers, but it's gonna be something different. I yeah. do believe. Um, but you know, this actually just remind me. I, now I'm like dying on the inside because this reminds me of the time my mom. I had a trunk, literally a trunk. All the Megazords. I had them all, except for the first one. I had all of them. My mom, at when I was like 12, 13, she goes, oh, you're too old for these. You can, you got to sell them. She made me sell Ooh. all my Megazords. We've all got that story, man. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, much happier things are happening on our social media pages, facebook.com slash downnerdy. Also, on Twitter at downnerdy757. I'm at Merck. With one arm. The one is spelled out, and I'm there on Twitter, Mr. Witham. I'm at James A. Switham, and that's W-I-T-H-A-M. Don't forget, we're also on Instagram as well, at downandnerdy757, if you want to follow our Instagram page. Plus, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find all our social media links up there. Find out what other comics that Nick and I reviewed this week on the website. We do written reviews as well. Also, there's a This Week section, which is pretty much like your guide, like the gamer's guide. If you were playing a game, you'd want the guide to go with you. Well, listen to the podcast. You'll have a guide to go with you. It tells you everything that's going to be coming up in the show, what to look forward to, who we're interviewing, and how you can actually buy the comics we're talking about during the interview at downandnerdypodcast.com. Exactly, and again, thanks to Kyle Higgins and Boom Studios for just bringing the Power Rangers back to comics and just to the comics realm because this is just a a great, great series. And again, as a Power Rangers fan, this is a definite pull. This is a definite – got to go out and get this because this is a great series. But that's going to do it for our show this week. I leave you with the same thing I do every week, nerds. Prague safe comic reading. Always bag and board your comics.